All right, before I say anything else, no, we are not doing CBC at the movies today. I don't want to get your hopes up. Like, oh, maybe they changed their plans. But I wanted to show this clip to illustrate an important point. The opening scene of a movie or book or story can do so much. It can be so powerful. When done well, it transports you as the audience to a different world. It sets the tone for the rest of the story. It lets you know what to expect, what rules the story will follow, and how we're supposed to watch and understand the unfolding drama. Uh, I remember vividly watching this opening scene from the movie Thor, which came out in 2011. Now you have to remember that this was very early on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this was before we just accepted that a movie could be about superheroes from space or crazy evil villains, aliens from another dimension. Thor wasn't a household name for people outside of, really outside of comic book fans. Uh, I saw this movie in Chicago with our pastoral staff. We were there for a conference and on a day off we went to see Thor. And I remember as we walked out of the theater, Pastor Eric looked at me and he said, wow man, that was pretty good. I thought that movie was going to be about Vikings or something. That just kind of tells you how little we knew about Thor and Loki and Asgard back in 2011. And I remember going into that movie feeling kind of lukewarm about it. I wasn't really sure I wanted to see it. But after that opening scene, I was just drawn in. I was drawn into this world I didn't know anything about, this world of Asgard and these godlike men and these evil creatures, this world of magic and power. Five minutes into this movie, and you understand that this world is different. Well, this morning we are continuing this new series, Visions. We're looking at the prophetic, apocalyptic visions of the Bible. And today we're going to look at what I would describe as the, uh, we can go back to the title slide, we're, gonna, we're looking at the uh, opening scene of this story. This is the vision that sets the stage for and introduces us to the apocalyptic word of the Bible. Now, if you remember from last week when I introduced this series, an apocalypse is really a glimpse at the divine reality, at what's going on behind the scenes, things that we often can't see, but that God reveals to us through these vivid, fantastical visions. These visions are often full of strange imagery and mysterious symbols. And when you read a biblical apocalypse, it's immediately clear that you're stepping into a world that's different. And so the passage we're going to look at today sets the tone for this world. This scene establishes the reality that we're stepping into, and really it helps us to understand what I would say is the foundational theme of the apocalyptic story. And so before we dive in, let me just repeat an important idea from last week about interpreting this kind of scripture. Uh, when we read an apocalypse, when we read this kind of end time stuff, we don't want to get overly caught up in the details. We're going to interpret the best we can. We'll talk about the main symbols and images from our passages, but we're not going to worry about figuring out every little detail. 
Instead, what we want to do is focus on the bigger picture of what God wants us to understand and how God wants us to respond. And so for this morning and for basically every message in this series for the next four weeks, we're going to try to answer two questions. First, what does God want me to perceive? What is it the hidden reality that God wants me to see and understand? And second, how does God want me to participate? How should my life be more in line with this divine reality that God is showing me? So we want to perceive new reality and we want to participate in that reality in new ways. So with that out of the way, we're finally going to jump into an apocalyptic vision in a minute. And we are going back to Ezekiel 1, which is the passage that we just barely took a look at last week. And if you missed that message, what we talked about is this basic idea is that as we step into this book of Ezekiel, as the chapter opens, the prophet Ezekiel is standing at a river in Babylon among the exiles. And the important thing to note is that there's this immediate contrast. Here is what Ezekiel can see. A pretty messed up, broken situation. People in exile, Babylon in power. The whole reality for Ezekiel is this tragic moment. And yet here is what God wants to show him. Here is the greater reality of what God is doing. So we're going to go ahead and read this opening chapter, Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Buckle your seatbelts, guys. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest the son of Bazai, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures, in appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn around as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and the lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. 
This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change directions as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out, one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the tumult, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with the lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like the throne of Lapis Lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. All right, so I told you these visions were a little crazy. And again, we're not going to try to parse out every little detail of this vision. Uh, if you're curious about specific parts of, of it, you can talk to me after service or email me sometime this week. But we want to focus on this bigger picture. What is this vision about? Or more specifically, what is it that God wants us to perceive? What is it that he wants us to see and understand? And to answer that question, I want to draw our attention to what I would say are the two central truths of this passage, of this vision. And the first is that God is on the throne. God is on the throne. Now, we'll talk about these crazy-winged creatures in a minute, these lion, ox, eagle guys. We'll definitely get to them. But even though most of the passage describes these creatures, it's all building towards the revelation of the glory of God himself. And in verse 26, we see him seated on this throne of brilliant blue, made of one of the most precious stones of the ancient world. As God sits upon the throne, he's consumed by fire and brilliant light. And we can't forget the beginning of the passage when the whole throne enters the scene on a windstorm with this immense cloud of lightning. These images give us a sense of God's great beauty, but also his terrifying power. Now think just for a second about the symbolism of fire. This is one of the most consistent images we have in all of Scripture for the glory of God. And it's a perfect symbol because we've all had experience with fire and we all understand this tension inherent to fire. On one hand, fire can awe us 
and comfort us with its warmth. We sit around small fires and we roast marshmallows with little kids. We sing songs around fires on our acoustic guitars and we have this good, warm sense of what a fire can be like. But at the same time, fire has this amazing, destructive potential. There's an aspect of fire that we can't harness, that we can't control. In seconds, a fire can become a blazing wildfire. It can consume acres of land and buildings. And see, these, aren't, these visions aren't given to tell us about God's literal appearance. So I would say it's very unlikely that God is actually made of fire. But what this vision is doing is it's using language that we can understand, language that we can feel to tell us what God is like. Fire isn't just a concept that we're familiar with. It's an experience that we've all had. And so this whole jumbled mass of fire and lightning and rainbow and glowing metal around the throne, these things all give us a sense of God's absolute beauty and power in a way that we can at least sort of picture in our heads. We can imagine this in our minds and we can kind of feel it in our souls. And what's clear here is that this power and authority are next level. It's completely other. It's transcendent. It's not like your power or my power or really any human power we can imagine. And as amazing as this is, this revelation of God's power, his sovereignty, his authority, God on his throne, I'm not sure it's even the most interesting part of this vision. Because when you read through this passage, you see that what Ezekiel seems to be most focused on, what draws his attention, is this chariot thing that the throne sits upon and these four living creatures. And this leads us to the second central truth of the passage. Not only is God on the throne, but Ezekiel wants us to see that God is on the move. God is moving. Now, I'm not sure that chariot is really the right term. I have a hard time kind of envisioning this wheeled mechanism. You've got wheels intersecting wheels next to the living creatures below a sea of vault of glass or crystal. But what we see clearly, what we're meant to take from this image, is that this throne is sitting atop this some kind of moving vehicle. And it's drawn, it's attended to by these four strange and powerful beings. Now let's start with these creatures. Uh, this is an image that we see throughout scripture. It's kind of a familiar vision. And so we can say with some certainty that these are the cherubim, the mighty angels of God. So at the very least, if you don't understand the rest of this message, the next time you see an image of an angel as a chubby little baby with wings, you can say to yourself, you know, that's not technically biblically accurate. Now don't say it out loud. Don't be that person. Just think it. Try not to be too proud about it. But you know that's not the way the Bible describes it. And they are described with so much detail. These wings, these legs, these faces, all these things are going on. But what we're meant to see is just how powerful, how authoritative even God's attendants are. 
And even more than that, what we see is their speed, how fast they are. They are like lightning. When I read this description of, the, uh, of these four creatures, I think of the superhero, the Flash, just kind of zipping around, going wherever he wants to in seconds. And not only are they fast, but their speed moves this chariot, this throne chariot complex. And so wherever they go with all of their speed, the throne goes with them. And so that means that God and all of his power, all of his sovereignty are constantly moving. God's awesome power is not some distant reality. It's not some faraway reality. He's on the move. He can be wherever he wants to be. And so this is pretty awesome. You know, as limited as our understanding might be, this vision gives us a glimpse at the sheer magnitude of God's authority, his reign. And so the question is, how do we participate in this reality? What does it mean to live in light of this? How are we meant to act and respond to this vision? And, you know, we're going to talk about this throughout the series. As I said, this foundational picture of God on the throne really sets the stage for the rest of the apocalyptic visions. But for this morning, we want to start with a simple invitation. An invitation that's so basic but is really difficult. Is that we have to believe that this is true even when we can't see it. We have to believe that this is reality. This is the real nature of life even when everything in the world around us might tell us that the opposite is true. Consider what it would have been like for Ezekiel to witness this vision. Actually, first, imagine for a second that I told you that the Los Angeles Lakers are the best team in the NBA, that they are far and away the class of the league, that no other team is even close. Now, you would probably look at their record and see that they are barely above 500. You might look at their roster and see that Stanley Johnson is an important part of this team. You might look at their advanced statistics and see that their offensive and defensive ratings are really just in the middle of the pack. You might watch a game and see that they're just okay. And so you would look at me in this claim and you'd say, nah, they are not a very good team. And so the burden of proof would be on me to show you something that would actually demonstrate that the Lakers are actually this good, in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary. Now, unfortunately, that evidence does not exist. Uh, the Lakers, with them, you can just believe what you see. But for Ezekiel and Israel, this same challenge exists. As Ezekiel stood at that river on the fifth day of the fourth month, right before he sees this vision, when he looked at all the evidence, the clear conclusion was, nah, -uh. God can't be sovereign over all of this. Because he would have looked around and seen another king in control this Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. 
This guy was the most powerful king in the world, and he had just defeated Israel. He just walked into Jerusalem, knocked down all their walls, taken their people captive, brought them to Babylon, enslaved them, overpowered them. Nebuchadnezzar controlled the day-to-day experience of Ezekiel and every one of his friends. He would have looked at the situation and not seen any beauty or glory, but seen brokenness and hardship. His whole world seemed wrong. And so this vision is God's way of saying, I know what you can see, but believe this. Believe that I am actually on the throne, that I'm reigning over everything, and that's reality. That's what's real. That's what's true. And he shows them these awesome visions of his sovereignty, his power, his beauty, to show that behind everything he could see was this transcendent reality. And think about these visions, that God is on the throne, and it's not just another earthly throne. It's not a throne like Nebuchadnezzar's. It's not a throne that's just kind of big and made out of gold. This throne is made out of fire and lightning. God sits upon a throne of real sovereignty, of real power. And God is glorious and beautiful, and it's not just that he's dressed up in these royal clothes or wearing a cool little crown, but he is wrapped in rainbow and light. His beauty, his goodness radiates to the world around him, making everything good and glorious. And most importantly, it's not just that God is on the throne up in the clouds or up on a mountain somewhere. God is saying, I am actually here in Babylon. Ezekiel sees this vision of the throne as he's standing at the river in Babylon. And God says, I'm here. I'm with you. I've come on the wings of angels to the one place where I seem most distant. To the one place where you might have thought, maybe I don't have authority. Maybe I can't come here. Maybe I don't want to. God is saying, I am here in all my power, all my beauty, all my sovereignty. I'm here reigning on the throne. And he's asking Ezekiel to trust him to trust that he's working out his plan and purpose and all his sovereignty, even when everything around him is going horribly wrong. In short, he's inviting Ezekiel to have faith in the unseen reality of the throne. And this is the same vision that God is inviting us to believe, to trust him. Uh, In the book of Revelation, God reveals a strikingly similar vision to the one that we see in Ezekiel. And we're going to talk a little bit about Revelation throughout this uh, series because Revelation is an important book for the church. It was written in the New Testament era. It was written to the church. And so it's speaking in some ways to our context, to our situation. And this opening vision of Revelation in Revelation 4 uh, mirrors Ezekiel's. We see the Apostle John being shown a door standing open to heaven, much like Ezekiel seeing the heavens open. And he goes through the door and immediately sees a great throne. And this throne is made of precious stones and brilliant light. 
There's thunder and lightning and fire, the whole works. And the vision leaves us with the same sense as Ezekiel's. Awe, beauty, and wonder. It's a clear picture of God's power and sovereignty. But again, the circumstances surrounding this vision are pretty bad. What happens immediately after this vision is an era of terrible suffering. This period of final judgment. During this time, sinful people are judged and destroyed. We see the physical world undergoing turmoil and upheaval. Crazy things are happening. And for God's people, they undergo persecution, suffering. Some are even killed for their faith. Now, there's some disagreement about Revelation and exactly when this era happens and what it will be like. But John is making a larger point. What he's telling us is that life is not always going to be easy for God's people. Faithfulness to God doesn't mean that we will always be happy and comfortable. It doesn't guarantee that we will always be safe and healthy. It doesn't promise us wealth or success. As we think about our lives and our future, what Scripture tells us is that when we look at what we can see here, there's always going to be hardship. There's always going to be craziness. There are always going to be things that we can't control. God being on the throne is not incompatible with hardship. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go the way we expect or hope. What we have to do is look beyond what we can see here to define who God is and define how we experience our world. Because if we use our own experience and wisdom, the evidence around us to decide what God is like, we're always going to fall short of the truth. We're always going to live with a certain amount of fear, anxiety, and worry. Because we're always going to look around at the world and say, how could God be sovereign over this? How can God be good and in control? Just look at this mess. God is inviting us to look here to what he says is true, to what he says is real, to define our understanding of reality. To trust that God is on the throne and to view our lives and our futures through that lens. Uh, I've shared many times before that uh, my son Grayson is he's kind of an anxious kid. And so a lot of nights he has uh, a hard time sleeping. He doesn't like being alone in his room because, you know, a dark room can be a scary place for a six-year-old. Weird noises, strange shadows. Uh, we live in Buena Park, so at any moment, a firework could just go off outside of our house and scare all of us. And so many nights, he'll come out to the living room where Alyssa and I are sitting, and he'll tell us that he's feeling scared or he's worried about something or that his water bottle made a funny noise that creeped him out. I kid you not, that happened last week. But a lot of nights, it's not enough to say to him, hey, don't be scared. You're okay, or you're safe. Because he doesn't feel that. 
That's not his reality. I could say he's safe all he wants to, but he's going to walk back into his room, lie down in the dark, and he's going to feel scared. But when I come back to his room, when I sit on the floor in his room, everything changes. He lies down in his bed and he falls asleep in minutes. And I can sense that he's at peace, that he feels fine. And I think about this a lot, how amazing that is. What an awesome privilege as a dad that is, that my presence can actually define his experience and his emotions. That as scary and uncertain as his dark room can be, when he knows I'm there, he feels safe. He feels good. That he feels good enough about me and my presence that it changes his entire world. All the noises and shadows kind of fade away because dad is strong, because dad is good, because dad is there. And I think this is the power of this vision. It's not simply to tell us about God or develop a theology of his character or attributes. It's to show us something that actually changes how we feel, how we experience our world. Changes how we view the challenges we face and all the uncertain, scary, stressful things that we go through. The vision of the throne is this truth, this picture that we are meant to hold on to, to take with us wherever we go, so that we can look to with eyes of faith whenever we feel scared, whenever we feel anxious, whenever we feel worried, whenever the world around us is a dark, scary, uncertain place, we know that God is there, that Dad is with us, that he's strong and powerful, and so we're safe. And so this morning, as we enter this apocalyptic world, and in coming weeks, we're going to see scary things. We're going to see messed up truth. But for now, we want to take this vision and just hold on to it, internalize it, remember it, trust it. We want to look at this vision of God on the throne and say, that is going to define the way I view my life. That's going to be the one truth that overcomes, that overpowers anything else I see. This is going to be the opening scene to my story every single day. And I'm going to hold on to it so that when I experience hardship, I can look to it, remember it. And I'm going to allow this vision to shape how I live, what I live for, and who I make king over my life. Let's pray.